Um, I'll dive in. It says I have 47% of battery life. And uh, there's an extension cord over there. If I have to, I'll just move down that way a little bit. But I think I'll be able to make it. I'll try to project. I hope you can hear me all right. Um, I want to talk a little bit with you today about material that is contained in this book. Uh, this book, we've been hard at work on it, a bunch of the Mockingbird folks, for the um, better part of a year and a half. And so this is sort of an opportunity to just tell you a little bit about some of the thinking that went into it. And it's specifically a talk that has to do with um, the material that is talked about in AA. If you're familiar with AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's pretty famous. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous right here is one of the best-selling books in the history of the world. It's one of the only books that almost rivals the Bible. It has sold 30 million copies, and um, it came out in 1935 and has had no marketing team to promote it. Um, it's been self-published by the people of AA. Uh, it's a fascinating thing if you think about what it takes for a book that has absolutely zero um, backing to sell 30 million copies. And it's the original place where the famous 12 steps were first written down. Maybe you're familiar with the 12 steps, or maybe you're familiar with um, different 12-step groups. There are tons of them um, for just about any kind of compulsive behavior you can think of. But AA is the classic, the original one, the birthplace of that stuff. And um, this talk is specifically about some of the spiritual ideas that are um, contained in the 12-step world of sort of theological thought. That means I'm going to talk a little bit today about the word spirituality. It's kind of a vague term. It has a lot of positive and a lot of negative connotations, depending on where you're coming from. But um, in a loose sense, that just has to do with the way in which an individual human being comes into contact with um, an almighty God. That's how I generally want to define the word spirituality. And AA has some very particular ideas that they think are at work um, whenever a human being, at least whenever um, a serious alcoholic, begins to try to find some kind of a spiritual awakening. This talk is called The Counterintuitive Wisdom of the 12 Steps, with a subtitle, God's Office is at the End of Your Rope. God's Office is at the End of Your Rope. And here we are at a conference about hope, but talking specifically about hope um, in, in the context of suffering, in the ruins. You could call that the end of your rope. And in AA, obviously, the classic form of compulsive defeat that people suffer from, you probably know some people who struggle with it, uh, is alcoholism. The uh, inability to stop drinking and uh, the inability to control drinking once it starts. The problem of recidivistic relapse. Uh, and so, I don't know if you've ever encountered that with anybody or known somebody who was affected by it, but it's a really ugly and terrible besetting weakness. It's one that some people have a lot of compassion for, but a lot of people have very little compassion for. But there are all other types of uh, besetting weaknesses. You're probably familiar with them. Uh, maybe we could come up with a list. Can you think of any compulsive behaviors that tend to destroy people's lives. Overeating, <laughs> undereating, they're, they're two classics. Substance abuse of other drugs. What about um, the inability to sleep, of workaholism? Um, any others come to mind? Shopping, there's a good one. Uh, internet porn. Internet porn, absolutely. What else? 
Family stuff. No, gambling. Oh, gambling. gambling. Gambling's a great one. Absolutely. These, what else? Gaming, internet gaming, another great example. Um, these are all examples of uh, behaviors that at times and in certain people's lives, they kind of take over. And to the exact extent that a person's life becomes subject to the need to fulfill some kind of an unceasing craving, you start to get into the problem of serious, compulsive meltdown, deceit, all the things that come along with it. Uh, basically, if you have a truly compulsive problem, you are um, the, it's a downhill trajectory. It often ends in severe cases, obviously, in, in death. Um, but here we are at a church, and we're all talking uh, in a little bit more of a down-to-earth, kind of regular Joe Schmo kind of way about suffering here at this conference. Just difficulties, hardships. And I, I personally think that there's a lot of overlap between the material that is talked about in such stark terms in the world of AA and the material that most of us experience on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't like. And so what I'm interested in doing is talking a little bit about the 12 steps in a way that they can give something to you who hopefully are not in the midst of suffering from extreme compulsive meltdown right now. But if you are, uh, this will be um, probably even more uh, of a natural fit. But I'm trying to talk about the material in a way that the insights of AA can impact and hopefully help you without your having to go out and take up uh, an extreme new drinking regimen in order to benefit from <laughs> the AA brand of spirituality. I'll, I'll probably read a few excerpts. Why not? Uh, this one comes from page 17, and it's a quotation uh, from a book that's one of the two basic texts in the world of AA. It's called The Twelve and Twelve, and it's a study of the Twelve Steps. And um, in it, the author, Bill W., who was one of the two founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, he wrote about the Twelve Steps in the introduction to that book. He says, AA's Twelve Steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. Many people, non-alcoholics, report that as a result of the practice of AA's 12 steps, they have been able to meet other difficulties of life. They think that the 12 steps can mean more than just sobriety for problem drinkers. They see in them a way to happy and effective living for many, alcoholic or not. So that's a nice way of saying everything that I just took 10 minutes to say. The talk is called The Counterintuitive Wisdom of the 12 steps. And the word counterintuitive, uh, maybe you know what it means, but think about it. Counterintuitive, it, it runs in the opposite direction of your instincts. Anything that is counterintuitive is something that goes in the opposite direction of your first thought, of your instinct. And the world of AA says that any spiritual life that's really going to make a difference and change you for the better will actually, by definition, be cutting against the grain of your makeup. That means that the 12 steps, in theory, describe a sort of pathway to God that is the exact opposite of the pathway that a person would be inclined to create for themselves. It's counterintuitive wisdom. It means it's the kind of stuff that you probably wouldn't come up with on your own. 
And to some extent, I think the fact that the material in AA is so foreign to the inclinations of human nature, I think that that speaks to the sort of divine origins of the material. Because I'm convinced that only a person with a really sick, sadistic sense of humor would come up with this material on the front end, given how kind of uh, off-putting it seems to be. There's a lot of material in the Bible, though, that talks all about wisdom and spirituality being something that kind of goes against our inclinations. For example, do you remember the famous line, Jesus says it in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? If you want to find your life, you must lose it. What a perfect description of something that goes against the grain of our tendencies. I want to find my life by creating it, <laughs> and then by holding on to the thing I've created, right? That's the instinct. Jesus says, real life is waiting for you only when you lose the life that you would create for yourself. You see how Jesus was very much in touch with this material. People were often finding the things he had to say to be very off-putting. There's a psalm, number 51. It's really famous. It's great, beautiful. It was Luther's favorite psalm. There's a little line in it where the psalmist, David, says to God, let these crushed bones rejoice. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. I don't know about you, but the idea of finding happiness that requires bone crushing on the front end isn't my idea of a good time. <laughs> but it's there. Um, in a general sense, you could say that the world of AA thinks that if you want to start to act in a way that is actually godly or inspired uh, or spiritual, just do the exact opposite of the thing that you are naturally inclined to do. Now, this is not the idea that all Christian traditions buy into. Many think that you can get to a point where your general inclination happens to line up with God's. AA is a little more skeptical about this, and maybe that's because the problems that AA tends to be dealing with are a little more extreme. But AA is coming from the same point of view that Martin Luther uh, was coming from, and, and he put it this way. He said, um, for domestic life, in case of doubt, choose what is contrary to your natural inclinations. Let me give you a simple example. James, you have a new baby. My wife and I have a new baby. The baby starts to cry in the middle of the night. And my inclination, naturally, is to sleep, to keep sleeping. This is an interruption. This goes against the trajectory that I set out on when I started the night in bed. Right? I want to sleep. And the loving thing to do, very obviously, goes in the exact opposite direction of my inclination. Love has a huge component of this, doesn't it? To the extent that you don't find yourself having to do things that you don't enjoy, you probably also aren't um, loving, or at least very loving. And at least that's the AA idea. And so when you start to get into the idea of counterintuitive wisdom, you start to get into all kinds of uncomfortable material. Uh, one um, classic example of this comes from... Uh, there's a statement you often hear in the rooms of AA where people say this odd line. They say, I'm a grateful alcoholic. Let these bones you've crushed rejoice, right? I'm a grateful alcoholic. You often hear people say things like, I'll never be grateful for alcoholism. My life has ended because of it. My marriage, my friendships, my jobs have ended because of this terrible affliction. How could I possibly be grateful for it? 
that's the place that the um, 12 steps actually intend to lead a person to, and that's what we're talking about here, hope in the midst of ruins. So the 12 steps, and the reason that people don't typically interact with the 12 steps until they get some terrible problem is because they are um, not very pleasant and they tend to minimize your wisdom and suggest that you're not all that. And that's not a very good feeling. And so people usually avoid this approach to connecting with God until the rug gets pulled out from under them in some area of their life. The 12 steps presuppose two things. The first one is that in order to improve or grow in any spiritual sense, closer to God, you need to change. You are not okay the way you are. Now that is very uncomfortable material. I don't know about you, uh, you sometimes meet people who explain to you the type of person they are and therefore they will never be changing and so whatever they do that fits into that category is justified and they'll say things like, I'm a big talker so I'm a control freak just so you know. Right? You, see, you hear people talk about their compulsive, ingrained, neuroses, and tendencies that don't budge. And because of it, they have sort of learned to overcompensate and justify and lead with their affliction. But the idea that they need to change, if, if somebody says, I'm a control freak, so, you say, oh, well, that's terrible. I wish you weren't, for your sake. You know, how, how well does that go over? Uh, <laughs> let me give you another example of the idea that you need to change. Um, have you ever seen any of those makeover television shows? Right? How do they get their contestants? People are being volunteered for a makeover. But nobody ever comes forward and says, you know, I dress terribly and I need a makeover. Right? It's always the family members who are like, please salvage the wastoid of a sister-in-law who, you know, only wears sweatpants all day long. And, and you know what I mean? That kind of, right? Makeovers are, by definition, something that are targeted toward people who don't think they need makeovers. And the 12 steps suggests that everybody needs a makeover and simultaneously understands that nobody... <laughs> wants a makeover, at least not until things get pretty bad. This also means that whenever you start to deal with 12-step ideas of spirituality, you are going to have to go to the places in your life that you are most unwilling to go to. The last, what do they say, reality is a great place to visit but I would never want to live there. <laughs> That's a saying that sometimes you hear. And the 12 steps start with the idea that the main place in your life that you need to go to, you need to spend some time sitting in the midst of, is the place in your life that is most messed up, most stuck, unbudging. So if you want to start to get into this material with me today, you might just brainstorm a little. Are there any areas in your life that people sometimes comment on or don't comment on? Are you a picky eater? Are you always giving waiters extra work and your husband wants to hide under the table whenever you do it? Are you struggle, do you struggle with depression? What about um, obsessive parenting or road rage? or workaholism, or vanity. Think about any of these things that tend to be areas in life where people get fixated. And um, those are the places that the 12 steps want you to go for your own sake, for your own well-being, and for the well-being of all the other people in your life. They say the most valuable part of your life is the most screwed up part of your life. Um,
Now, I've said that people are really reluctant to do this. I know that uh, like when I take my dog Calhoun to the vet and he has to get an x-ray, you know what he does? He totally freaks out. We have to muzzle him. He lashes out. The only time when we specifically focus all of our attention on his health and well-being is when we take him to the vet. Usually we're sort of downplaying the reality of the vet, you know, just feeding him with treats. Every once in a while we have to take him to the vet, and he goes ballistic. He's convinced that the place in his life that we want to focus on, which is usually an area where there's an injury, he got he was terribly bitten once by a dog at a dog park. And because of it, we had to take him to a vet. And the moment that the vet started to probe the area where the wound was present, he went nuts, flailing and barking and showing his teeth. We had to muzzle him and drug him. But dogs aren't the only ones who are like that, right? In fact, dogs usually do a better job of that you can train a dog in many instances more easily than you can fix a human being who is dealing with uh, all kinds of enmeshed and ingrained problematic tendencies. B.F. Skinner, the famous South Carolinian psychologist, said once that the only difference between men and rats is that rats learn from their mistakes. <laughs> That's pretty smart. Um, I experienced this personally. I worked as a counselor at um, a place in New York City called the New York City Rescue Mission down in Tribeca. And it's the oldest men's homeless shelter in New York City. And they have uh, a rehabilitative program for guys who want to come off of the streets and try to work their way up and out of um, homelessness and all kinds of difficulties. And in almost every single case, the men that came into this program uh, were struggling with some form of substance abuse and or mental illness, usually a combination of the two, but almost without exception, substance abuse. And my job, <laughs> it was nice of them to sick the new guy on the new guys. They had me welcome them in, which actually meant I had to ask them all of the most uncomfortable questions. I had to ask them things like, um, they would come into my office, each new guy, and I'd say, hi, welcome, we're so glad you're here. Um, we really think that there is hope for you. I know you've kind of come to a low place, and this isn't the most glamorous stop on the bus, but uh, we really think that there's a good future, uh, you know, that you have access to or that we will try to provide you with. So I just need to ask you a few questions. Uh, what brings you here? And here, let me actually pull out the place because I wrote it down accurately. The guys would say, I'd say, first of all, how are you doing? You know what they would say? Every time. I'm doing great. I'm glad to finally be off the streets and getting my life in order. I want to make something of my life. And I know that it's time. Thanks be to Jesus. And I'd say, so what brings you to our program? Well... I had some tough times. I got messed up. But we don't need to talk about that anymore. Thanks be to Jesus. And I'd say, I hope you don't mind, but I need to ask a few more specific questions about your history. Were drugs or alcohol a factor in your life before you got here? And they would say, well, yeah. I got a little messed up with drugs and alcohol, but I'm done with that now. Thanks be to Jesus. And I'd say, um, did you say that you smoked crack? And they'd say, yeah, you know, I messed around with that stuff some. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they would try to use spiritual lingo to avoid at all costs, even at the very bottom you know, cases that in many instances are worse than things that most of us ever encounter. Um, and in each case, even at the bottom of the barrel, living on the Bowery, down in New York City, these guys were still 100% reluctant 
to visit the part of their life that was so messed up, amounting to their downfall every time they tried to build things back up. That's how strong the reluctance to go there is. And um, the 12 steps say that any spiritual experience starts in that exact place that you're reluctant to visit. The places in your life where you are powerless. So what I want to do now is just go through a few of the insights that the 12 steps bring that are counterintuitive. The, The ideas that AA says are implicit in any kind of deep and real spiritual life. And um, the first ones you can see already, the insight that AA brings that is so counterintuitive is that if you really want to connect with God, you need to find your own area of weakness or um, what the 12 steps call powerlessness. And the beginning of the 12-step experience, which in theory is a kind of the beginning of a spiritual awakening, couldn't feel less spiritual to the subject. Um, That means that the 12 steps typically, and pretty much across the board, they tear you down rather than sort of build you up. And what happens normally in the world, I think, and what we're talking about at this conference, is that um, there are sort of three primary, four contributing factors that lead a person to have to have a spiritual experience of this variety. And what are they? The obvious one that we've been talking about here, and some of these are kind of enmeshed and can be very intertwined, and I don't pretend to be able to differentiate between them clearly, But um, one classic thing that will force you to have to confront your own powerlessness is uh, your own, what the Bible calls, sin. Any area where there's a strong, driving proclivity toward something. Any area in your life where you find yourself struggling with fixation. Um, Some of my friends here can attest that as a um, a DJ, I uh, have a voracious appetite for record buying and finding obscure vinyl records and I can never get enough disco records from the late 1970s and early 80s. It is a deep uh, hunger, a thirst. Do you have an area where there's a kind of fixation coming straight up from out of your stomach and sort of gobbling something? There's one main area where you'll find that this material may speak to you. Another thing that will drive you to have to reflect on this stuff um, is uh, what the Bible calls the devil. Some kind of sort of temptation from the outside that may take you down with it. Something that seems almost to be actively seeking to uh, destroy you. Um, I don't want to get too into that, but I do find that in life um, there is a real aspect, it seems to me, of evil at times, a persistent sort of pressing thing that is often taking people down at their most vulnerable and at the worst possible times in a way that is far from just a fickle fallen world. It's much more of an actively aggressive fallen world. Then comes the fallen world. This is the main one. This is what we're here mainly to talk about. What else drives you to this place? Suffering. It's a world that is infused and infected with death. And it plays out in all kinds of ways. Illness, death, tragedy, accidents, natural disasters. Um, Think about about the things that uh, involve suffering. Uh, Anything that has caused you to really suffer is also a place that probably is uncomfortable and yet absolutely ripe for some kind of spiritual rejuvenation, as far as the 12 steps are concerned. And lastly, and this is the one that RJ talked about this morning, the most unpopular idea of all, is the idea that if sin, or the devil, or uh, the fallen world don't take you down to a place where you can finally consort with God from a point of weakness, 
the Bible suggests boldly and very unpopularly that God himself might be the one to do it. Where the Holy Spirit talks about people being convicted of sin. This is not popular material, but the idea is perhaps that if um, nothing else causes you to suffer, then God might do it. And that it might be out of some kind of actual compassion. Let me give you an example. It comes from my favorite movie, Redbeard. This is really a great movie, really worth watching by Akira Kurosawa, the director of um, all these great Japanese movies. Uh, Ikiru, Ran, um, Rashomon, uh, The Magnificent Set, what's it called? The one that, The Seven, Seven Samurai is the most famous movie. Uh, but this one, Redbeard, is the story of a doctor who works in a hospital and um, he works only with the poor and his name is Redbeard. And there is a young, this is Redbeard, and there's a young doctor who comes to uh, study under him. He's actually required to go and study under this guy, and he's really upset. He says, I'm on the track to become the Shogun's doctor, and you want me to go work at a hospital and learn from some doctor who only works with, you know, hicks? And he's furious and, and is very resistant to the idea that this doctor might have anything to teach him. And, um, of course, Redbeard is actually an incredibly wise and insightful genius of a doctor. And in a very moving scene, when the guy, the young student's prideful shell, is starting to melt just a little bit, he finally agrees to wear the uniform that the employees are required to wear. Redbeard says, come with me, I need your help. Today we have to go and do a house visit. And Redbeard leads the man into a town and to a brothel. And when they walk through the kind of gates into the courtyard of this brothel, these sort of thuggish dudes pull this gate closed. And Redbeard walks right in to this room where this very um, mean woman is, is in the back. You can hear her yelling. And there are three women in the front. And Redbeard says, how are you doing? Have you been taking the medicine I gave you? And one of the women says, yes, yes. Uh, and he says, where is the little girl? And they say, she's back there. And you can hear this woman yelling, and you hear these awful sounds of a child being hit with a reed or a stick or something. And goes to the back, and he finds an old woman beating a little girl. And Redbeard grabs the woman's arm, and he intervenes. And he feels the girl's forehead, and, and the woman says, She's uncooperative little girl, but you can imagine the implications. And he says, um, she is sick, she needs treatment, and I need to take her with me to my hospital in order to help her to recover. And the woman says, oh no, you can't take her with you, she's worth a lot of money to me. And he picks the girl up, at which point the old woman freaks out and runs out and says, he's trying to take one of our girls. And all of this gang crowd into the front room. And there's Redbeard holding the little girl. He hands the little girl off to his assistant. And they say, what are you trying to do, buddy? And he says, i got to go treat this little girl. And they say, um, no, you don't. We need to have a little talk. Why don't you come out to the courtyard with us? And Redbeard, totally unafraid, walks right out the door, following them into the courtyard. At which point, he encounters a gang of 20 men ready to attack. And you know what he does? Using a kind of combination of chiropractic know-how and jujitsu and kung fu, he takes them all out in a kind of Matrix-style moment. Just and suddenly, the ground is strewn with 20 men. And um, he's going around popping their arms out of their sockets and knocking their... Adam's apples out so they can't breathe and you know all this cool weird doctorly kung fu stuff <laughs> and then there are all these men on the ground lying and screaming and um, the young associate comes out holding the girl and he says give the little girl um, put her down for a moment I need your help I've just done something terrible I have made use of violence 
now we must treat these men. And Redbeard and the young doctor go around to the men that have just been beaten up. And he readjusts their spines and knocks their Adam's apples back into place and relocates their dislocated shoulders. And as he walks toward the men, they pull up, they seize up in fear, and then he... And they can breathe again. And this is the portrait of God, I think, who, if nobody else will, bring you to a place where you can become ready for healing and good news, then he might just do it himself in order to then be able to treat you and help you. And uh, so I recommend this. The... um, Twelve steps, that's sort of a first step idea. Whatever it takes to bring you to a bottom is the best thing that can happen to you. Not a very popular idea. Um, I'll never forget I broke up with a girl once. She broke up with me, and I was miserable. And woe is me, and you know, I prayed, God, don't let her leave. And God heard my prayer, and then she dumped me. And I remember talking with a friend who said, one day you'll thank God (laughs) that you didn't marry that girl. And he was absolutely right. And at the time, I hated him for saying it. But then I met my wife three years later. And oh man, I'm so glad. That's the kind of portrait sometimes that you find AA to be putting forward Uh, that it's unpopular, but very important. Um, In the third step of AA, there is an idea that what every person needs to do is relinquishing control on life. That the most helpful thing for a human being, if they are to find usefulness, happiness, lasting sobriety, is the idea that they need to give up. Surrender everything. All aspirations, all hopes, all dreams. Again, you see, here's, we're three steps in now and it's only getting more uncomfortable. You thought you just had to give up the thing you love most. But no, you actually have to give up everything you even hope and aspire to love in the future. And that idea is very, very uncomfortable and very, very important. Maybe you've seen the movie Finding Nemo. Many of you seen Finding Nemo? It's so good. It's one of these great Pixar movies. And in Finding Nemo, there's a father and um, he has a little boy named um, Nemo. And <laughs> Good one. And, and uh, his, his name is Marlon. And he's an ultra-paranoid father. He's a helicopter parent of the worst variety because um, when the boy was tiny, the mother of the boy was eaten by a barracuda in a moment when the father turned his back and he's convinced that um, in some way the mother died because of his carelessness. And so as a result, in parenting this little boy who is the, the last remnant of his wife, and the hope for his future, he becomes all of the things that Dave uh, Johnson warned us about in this morning's first breakout session today. Um, Overly paranoid in a way that is ultimately unhelpful to the little child. He won't even let the boy go to school because he's worried that the teacher won't really take good enough care of the boy because the boy has a small fin. He's worried that that fin, you know, it's like, oh, because my child has allergies, they can't go to school. Fear kind of thing. And, um, and he gets so into this that the little boy does what probably any child would do. He, he pushes against it. He rebels. He becomes, he feels like his dad is a jerk. And one day, he sneaks off, and, of course, Marlon's worst fear, he gets caught up in a net. And the little boy is fished out of the ocean and taken to a fish tank in Australia. And the rest of the movie is this father trying to find his son. 
And what ends up happening as the movie unfolds is that he becomes aware of the fact that he has um, his best efforts at control and at maintaining his son's safety have not only failed, they've probably even, heaven forbid, exacerbated the problems. And there comes this terrible moment where Marlin gets swallowed up by a whale, and he's in this whale's mouth with a friend, and uh, the whale basically represents God. And Nemo, or Marlin, the father, the paranoid father, represents all of us trying to hold on to control in order to succeed and maintain some kind of safety and positive outcome. And um, they're swallowed by a whale. And Marlin thinks, oh no, we're, we're done for. And then his friend says, I speak whale, and the whale is telling us it's okay. Swim to the back of the throat. And Marlin says, of course that's what the whale's saying. And he holds on to this taste bud, this protruding taste bud on the tongue, and the water starts to drain out of the mouth so that he's suffocating from not being immersed in the water. And eventually, Marlin... And it's a portrait of his entire life. The exact thing that he's been doing in an attempt to save himself and others is the exact thing that's actually killing him. And eventually, he has to let go. He falls to the back of the throat. There's this rushing sound and total darkness. And the next thing you know, they've been blown out of the blowhole of the whale and up back into the open ocean where... This father has a totally new understanding. And, of course, at that moment, things start to turn around. Uh, so that's very much an AA idea. That is, again, the control idea is something that AA has very little time for. And I think that um, Jesus felt the same way. If ever there was a portrait of a person who was not concerned for his own personal safety, it was Jesus. Another unpopular idea that the 12 steps are very fixated upon. It's the idea that any um, problem in your life is uh, more your own than anybody else's. So if you are angry at any person, that idea, whatever it is that you are angry about, is actually more your problem than the person or situation or institution that you are directing your anger toward. Um, Jesus, you know, sort of agreed. He said, why do you look at the speck in other people's eye and not in the plank in your own eye? And he said, love your enemy. And he said, forgive 70 times 7. See the counterintuitive wisdom and how AA has sort of bought into it? AA believes that anytime you're dealing with anger, and who isn't? How do you feel about the com upcoming election? <laughs> See what I mean? Uh, what about, um, do you have a sports team you like? Does that also mean that you have a sports team that you don't like? What, what is it about your spouse, who you love, that you hate? What is the, um, what contingent of people drive you up the wall and you're constantly looking for fresh evidence to reinforce the fact? Well, the world of AA, the 12 steps suggest that that problem is more yours than theirs. And if you ever are to get to a point where you can engage with forgiveness and love, you need to deal with something inside of yourself. So let me give you an example of how AA deals with this in the fourth step. This comes from page 78. Imagine a guy named Gary and another guy named LeVar. One person in this room, by the way, has a dog named LeVar, after uh, LeVar Burton of the Reading Rainbow. Um, <laughs> Gary and LeVar are not great friends, but they are, or rather, used to be acquaintances. Now they just hate each other. Here's what happened. Both Gary and LeVar are smokers. One day, Gary found himself sitting next to LeVar in the library at their college. 
Gary noticed that LeVar had a fresh pack of cigarettes sticking out of an open zipper pocket in his backpack. And since Gary was fresh out of smokes, he asked LeVar if he could bum a cigarette. Somewhat surprisingly, LeVar said no, mentioning about how the price of cigarettes had gotten astronomical and he couldn't afford to spare any. Gary thought this response was ridiculous and stingy, and he didn't expect it. After mulling it over for a few minutes, Gary decided that LeVar's answer was so inappropriate that he would not accept it. He decided it would actually be helpful to LeVar to experience one slight punitive consequence for his miserliness, even if only the cosmos noticed. While LeVar's back was turned, Gary snuck up behind his chair and slowly reached into LeVar's open backpack, pulling the exposed pack out of the open pocket. At the moment he was removing a single cigarette, LeVar sensed something going on just behind him. LeVar turned around suddenly, catching Gary in the act of stealing the cigarette, the pack still in his hand. To the surprise of everyone in the library, LeVar screamed out an expletive and pulled out a meat cleaver from inside of his blazer. In a single swooping motion, the cleaver sliced through Gary's forearm. Gary's severed hand fell to the ground, still clutching the pack. LeVar had cut off Gary's hand. That was five years ago, but understandably, the resentment against LeVar was still alive in Gary's mind. <laughs> Hatred for LeVar seethed in him whenever he looked at the stump that used to be his hand. Now let's look at Gary's fourth step inventory, which is the place where Gary was forced to have to try to come to a new understanding of this situation that had become a source of huge bitterness, frustration, and limitation in his life. When asked about his resentments toward LeVar, Gary easily rattles off a list of reasons that justify his hatred. Due to LeVar's disproportionate response to the situation, Gary has felt for years that his anger was well-founded. Nonetheless, that anger is robbing him of any peace. And as far as AA is concerned, it's blocking him from the sunlight of the spirit. Step four is designed to help Gary get past his resentment at LeVar. This is what LeVar needed to see, his part in the anger. And this is what he found when he actually looked at this area of his life, rather than at LeVar's area in his life. He noticed, first of all, that he didn't respect LeVar's no to his request. He asked if he might have a cigarette, and LeVar said no. And Gary didn't respect it. He tried to steal his cigarettes. That was his part. He's been trying to make other people hate LeVar ever since by getting them to take his side by gossiping about him, by trying to literally pollute LeVar's life from a distance, by trying to bring other people in against LeVar. He has been absolutely and unequivocally opposed to the idea of ever forgiving LeVar. And that's a serious problem, especially if peace is something you're at all interested in in life. He has to admit, too, that like LeVar, sometimes he doesn't like to share either. That he would be angry, too, if someone had tried to steal from him. And also that technically smoking is pretty unhealthy. And that not getting to smoke is not really a bad thing. That maybe, in fact, LeVar was helping him by saying no to giving him a cigarette. These were the kinds of ideas that AA would suggest Gary needs to come to if he is ever going to connect with God and find any kind of a spiritual way forward. Another example of um, how the 12 steps bring great insight to the table in life is that um, they say it's absolutely crucial 
that you share with some person all of your deepest, darkest secrets. Every dark cranny, every hidden skeleton in your closet. What could people be more disinclined to do, right? I mean, it doesn't say you should tell everybody, but it says you need to tell somebody, period, if you are ever going to experience any peace. The idea in AA is that in the fifth step, you meet with another person, and you do a sort of slightly updated form of what the church has always called confession, but with another person, not just God. Another person is crucial. And um, what people find in AA is that doing that is actually incredibly helpful and freeing, even though it's the last thing they would ever want to do. It's like skeletons come out of the closet so that they can receive a proper burial. This is crucial material. Here's another idea that um, the 12 steps think is really important if you're ever going to kind of grapple with God in a real way. It's the idea that um, there's a big difference between a relationship with God and a relationship with Santa Claus. Santa Claus is um, a sort of projection of all that we hope we can somehow get from the world if we behave well. And most people are quickly, you know, children, we, we pray, God, give me a bike. God, don't let me get sick. God, change this. And AA says that if you ever are going to connect with God about a situation, you need to stop treating him like he's Santa Claus and stop treating him like he's anything other than a loving and knowing parent who knows better. So an, an example of this that I saw that I like, I have this great friend, um, and he's actually uh, very involved in Mockingbird. Um, and he was in a Bible study with me in New York City years ago, and he hated his job. And every week, Tom would come to our Bible study, and we would say, does anybody have any prayer requests? And every week, Tom would say, what actually is true of lots of people, by the way, I've come to find out, that he hated his job. I hate my job. I need a new job. Can we pray for me to get a new job? And we would all say, of course, absolutely. I'm sure God wants to give you a new job. Let's all pray for a new job for Tom. So every week for two years, we prayed for a new job. And it fell on deaf ears. Nothing happened. And then one day, a new guy came to our group and... Um, he wasn't familiar with our way of doing things in our group. And we quickly figured out we'd made a mistake because when we asked um, if anybody wanted to pray that night for anybody, this guy, Dan, quickly offered. He said, I'd love to pray. We said, great. He said, well, does anybody have anything they need prayer about? And we all said, here comes Tom's request. I need a new job. Tom hates his job. We've been praying for a new job for two years for Tom. And so Dan said a little prayer. He said, God... I thank you for all that you've given to Tom. And I pray that when you want him to have a new job, you'll give him a new job. But in the meantime, you'll help him to see that the job he has is actually the one you want him to have. Because that's where you have him. And I pray that you would help him to find a way that he can serve you in the place where you have planted him. Amen. And we all went. You know, that's not a prayer. But it was a prayer. And it was a deep prayer. And it was a real prayer. And it's the kind of prayer that AA really thinks is crucial. If you're ever going to actually come into a place where your life has any kind of actual interaction with God. Lastly, I'd like to give you um, one final example of grace. Um, you see, I believe that if you don't ever come into contact with these parts of your life, that you will actually never come in contact with um, hope in the way that we're talking about it in this conference. And real hope, as we've been talking about it in this conference, is not Santa Claus-type stuff. It is grace that enables and builds you up in the face of the suffering. It's the love of God 
that enables you to face the thing you hate, not the love of God that enables you to escape from it. It's the love of God that enables you to deal rather than to avoid. And um, if you don't know struggle, you will never really know grace in a way that makes all the difference when life and human tendencies are unbudging. So this last example comes straight out of the rooms of AA from a member named Dick A. Uh, And Dick A had an experience where he came to AA, um, a totally broken man. Um, He had one pair of pants, one shirt, and this is what he says about his experience of coming into AA. I walked up to a payphone and dialed the number for AA. I started crying, saying, I'm an alcoholic. Instead of rejecting me, the woman on the other end of the line said to me, just a minute, you wait right there, and sent out a guy named Ed. I actually resisted listening to him for a while, because I thought, He wasn't hip like me. I knew that I was just down on my luck. Ed, on the other hand, looked like he'd never had any luck in the first place. (laughs) But then I saw his eyes. He did what it talks about in the big book. He relived the horrors of his past with me. He told me about himself. And he did something that I learned a great lesson from. He asked me about me. He said, what do you do? And I started crying. I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. But he cut me off and said, no. What did you do for a living before drinking got the better of you? And I told him about my writing. He actually recognized some of the things I'd written. And he said, oh, that's great stuff. You're very talented. God must really have something in mind for you. Then I just broke down and started crying because no one had said anything kind or hopeful to me in years. And if he hadn't done that, I would not be sober today. He had read the big book, and he understood that we don't get anyone into recovery by being tough on them. We get people here by unconditional love. They're already hurt, and they've already been through enough hell. We don't need to add to it. We need to let them know there's a place where there's hope. And that's what Ed did for me. And that's what, in theory, the church should be doing for the world. After he talked to me for a little while, Ed put me into his pinto to get me something to drink so that he could help me taper off the booze because I was now starting to vibrate and going into withdrawals. He asked, are you going to be okay? I'm going to stop here for just a minute to get some money so we can go buy something for you to drink so that we can start to get your life back on track. And he got out of the car to use an ATM. It was a hot day, June 8th, 1977, in Atlanta. So he goes up to this machine to get his $20 or whatever, and before he can get back to the car, I couldn't get the door open because my hands were rattling so much. And I had thrown up all down the inside of his brand new Pinto. And the only thing that he did when he opened the door and saw what had happened was put his arm around me. He said, it's going to be okay. If he had been critical of me, I wouldn't be here tonight. But Ed knew that we don't have new cars, new jobs, or new lives unless we're willing to work with another and serve and he loved me and he cared for me and he took me to a place where I could weather the withdrawals and that's a portrait of real grace and it is a thing that helps people to face the hardships and the struggles and in so doing starts a whole new work Um, I really believe that this is uh, very helpful very important and very true to the heart of the gospel message that says that um, God loves you in spite of and 
without um, any hindrance. So um, I hope there's something for you there, something about the good things that come from the bad things and the necessity of them and that the God who causes them to rise to the fore might actually be a God who loves uh, with great and compassionate fervor you. So let's maybe close with a little prayer and um, we'll call it a wrap. Thank you, Lord, for good news that uh, meets us in the place of bad news that is often the place where we spend most of our time living. We pray that in that place we would find your grace and that it would bring hope into our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.